You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. But we're starting our uh, series today on Exodus, and I'm pretty excited. Is anyone else excited? Cool. How... I'm just curious, how many of you here were for our Dreamer series uh, through Joseph's life? Awesome. Um, it's cool to see how the church has grown and changed. And so we did this whole series through Genesis talking about Joseph. And now we're in Exodus. And can I, can I tell you something? This is going to be the best gift you could give yourself for Christmas. Follow me. The best thing you could do for yourself to make Christmas more meaningful, more powerful, and more life-changing is to consistently be a part of our journey through Exodus as a church. Because the more you understand Exodus, the more meaning that Christmas will have. And you're like, I think I get the Jesus baby manger thing. Trust me, you don't yet. Because the more that we go through this, the more you will see how powerful, how life-changing, that how this was not a plan B. This was the comeback from the get-go, and this is going to be an incredible Christmas. So I just want to encourage you, the decisions you're making in October will decide some, some really healthy fruit in December. So if I can encourage you to be a part of what's happening here, if you, if you miss, go online, listen to the podcast. Uh, we love everyone who listens online. It's fantastic. But I really believe if you seed into this, it's going to make your Christmas better. And who doesn't want a better Christmas? Amen? Ooh. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Awesome. Cool. Well, hey, I, I found a, a video that I think really sums up Exodus in a great way. We're going to show it this week to kind of kick us off. Uh, it, it's from the Spoken Gospel. It's a group that does all these uh, summations of books of the Bible. We might show it a couple times as we go through the series. But I think it's a really uh, beautiful way of summarizing all that's happening. So we are going to watch that together. Who is God? At the beginning of the book of Exodus, surely that's the question the people had to wrestle with. Because they were a nation of slaves waiting on God to show up and make good on the promises he made. For God had vowed to the founder of these enslaved people, a man called Abraham, that his offspring would be a great nation who would bless the earth and dwell with him in a land called Canaan. But Abraham had been dead for centuries, and his children weren't a nation, they were in captivity. And while they were growing in number, so was their slave master's cruel activity. So who is God? when you've experienced nothing but 400 years of his passivity? Were God's promises fake? Was his faithfulness flawed? Or maybe all the stories they heard were nothing but frauds? This is the question of Exodus. Who is God? To answer this, God raises up a deliverer, a man 
named Moses and discloses who he is by speaking out of a bush engulfed in flames. God tells Moses who he is by God telling Moses his name. Who is God? God is I am. As in, I am with you. I am faithful. I am listening. I am able. So as Israel was bringing all their questions to the table, like, who is God? Where is he? Will he come? Does he see? God was answering all of these by being I am to his people. I am was with them when he heard and responded to Israel's cries and when he performed wonders and miracles before Pharaoh's eyes. I am was with them when the plagues began their takeover of every false Egyptian god and when he provided a way for his people to be passed over by blood. I am was with them when he moved Pharaoh's heart to allow the people to flee and when he saved Israel and punished Egypt by parting and closing the Red Sea. I am was with them through the wilderness, in fire and in cloud, and when with manna and quail he fed the grumbling crowds. I am was with them on the mountain, when he made his glory and power prominent, when he called the people his own and made with them a covenant. I am was with them in the tabernacle, when he gave Israel a tent in which they could dwell together, and when he filled that tent with his glory, so much so that even Moses could not enter. I am was with them because that's who God is. A God who enters into our story, working behind, among, through, above, everything in the world, just to show us his glory. Who is God? God is I am. And no matter who you are, this is a question you have to wrestle with. Who has God shown himself to be in the pages of Exodus? Because the whole world has been in Israel's position. We've all been slaves to broken hearts and evil systems. We are all oppressed by death and will fall under its final opposition. And so surely we've all wondered, who is God? Will he fix this wicked condition? And what Exodus shows us is that God answers our petition. Because the I am who rescued his people from Egypt rescued the whole world in the person of Jesus. Jesus was with us by becoming human as a response to our cries. Like Moses stepped out of Egypt, this new deliverer stepped out of heaven and walked by our side. Jesus was with us because the true plagues of sin and death had made their takeover. So Jesus became sin and was pinned under death so these plagues might pass us over. Jesus was with us by falling under the waves to open a path of dry ground so that we who deserve to be lost in the water like Egypt, instead, like Israel, can be found. Jesus is with us today in our deepest hungers and hardest strife, for through his spirit and word, he provides
provides for us like he provided for Israel, but this time we get the bread of life. Jesus is with us as God was on the mountain with Moses, but instead of man climbing up to find God, Jesus came down and found us. Jesus was and is and will be with us because as his body was opened, so was the tabernacle's tent. So he can make us and the world his dwelling both now and when he comes again. Who is God? Who has he revealed himself to be in the pages of Exodus? He is, I am. He is with us. God is our rescuer. God is Jesus. I love that video because it just sets up the truth of what we're facing in our Exodus series, which is, as I fix this table, who is God? And I think, I, I think it's so right, and, and the video raises this question that we all have to, at one point, ask ourselves, answer, come up with, with a reason, and, and understand who is God. Who has God said, shown himself to be? And to me, Exodus, it, it, and to all of us as Christ followers, Exodus stands as this testament to who God really is. And there's a lot of history in Exodus, there's a lot of focuses in Exodus, a lot of interesting things in Exodus. But Exodus is not just about history, it's about theology. It's about an intimate and personal, about a national and connected relationship with God. And what I love about Exodus is everything that happens in Exodus points to Jesus Christ. Everything that we're going to read about and go through, everything as we walk through it, it's pointing us to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And so this book, it's written by Moses, inspired by God, about a people that is crying out and they're wondering who is God, is reflected for each of us in that same cry. Who is God? Where is God? What is he doing? Does he hear our cry? When will deliverance come? And all of these things pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so as we go through Exodus, as we look through this series, I want to encourage you. And it's the reason that the, the, the more that you can be connected into it, the better. Because every one of these things build. See, the Bible is not an accident. Scripture is not an accident. Jesus is not a, a backup plan. This is something that as you follow Scripture will begin to open your mind and your heart and realize how God has been so clearly walking and pointing to the salvation that we would receive, not from just slavery in Egypt, but from slavery from all sin and shame. Exodus is about freedom. And so I want us to read together. If you brought your Bibles, can you do me a favor? Could you open up to Exodus chapter 1? If you brought your Bible, just go Genesis then Exodus. So first big chunk, Genesis, and then just literally turn the page, chapter 50 of Genesis, chapter 1 of Exodus, and you're right there. And we're going to read this together. 
uh, starting with verse 1. The words will be on the screen. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. But I'm going to read this to you. And my hope today is to kind of give you a basis, a foundation of what I believe God is trying to speak from Exodus into your heart to begin to prepare the ground, to break up some of that ground, to believe again for the rain, to believe again for deliverance in your life, to accept the deliverance that has come through Jesus. So let's read together. If you're with me, say amen. If you love coffee, say amen. Amen, good. These are the names of the sons of Israel. These are the names. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation died. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. (coughs) You're like, wow, that is just so moving. God be praised. Altar call, right? (laughs) No. Uh, It's important. It is important. And it's important for us for this reason is because uh, in the, the Hebrew grouping of books, in the Pentateuch, there's, uh, there's a grouping of five books that, that begin, for us, the Bible. And Exodus is one of these books. And Exodus begins, it's not called Exodus. Uh, the Hebrews do not call it Exodus. It's called These Are the Names. And the reason it's called These Are the Names because it's a history it, of what had God has done for their people. And usually when you see a genealogy, that's a list of names tracing back fatherhood or motherhood through time, it's for a very clear purpose. And that purpose is someone was promised something and I'm down the line from it. I'm part of this inheritance of the promise. So the beginning of this genealogy is is, uh, in the book written by Moses here is meant to connect Exodus to immediately what happened in Genesis. And it's not its own separate thing. It's like a flow of the same promise, the same covenant. So when they would read Exodus, it was tying back in to the promise that was made for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel. And so there's this very conscious effort. I, you know, For those of you who were here in the Dreamer series, we ended with Joseph in Egypt. So Joseph sold into slavery. Going to, an amazing story. You can go back. You can listen to it. Go back and read it. It, it. It's amazing. He goes through this whole time. He's the number two in Egypt. He's like this super big wig. And then there's a famine, and he brings his whole family. It says 70 people. So they don't start with a lot. They end with a lot, though. So all 70 people come and join in in this moment. But they're recalling this because they're recalling a promise that was given way, way, way back. Remember, when you see a genealogy, it's trying to connect to a promise that was given. And so here's the promise. I'm going to read it for you real quick. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, this was their forefather, Abram, who becomes Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This is God talking. And I will make of you a great nation. There's one promise. And I will bless you and make your name great. Two promises. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Another promise. And I will dishonor. uh, And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Another promise. So God had given the people of Israel through Abraham, remember the genealogy is connecting to Abraham, had given uh, this list of names, is connecting 
the list of the tribes, the list of the people is connecting to where they came from, uh, had given him this promise, a vast population increase for his descendants, a long, important family lineage. That's the, the meaning of make your name great. God had promised a worldwide blessing through his offspring and an eventual granting of unearned citizenship in a special land of God's choosing. And so oftentimes the, these lists of names, this grouping of tribes, all of these things were to give a connection of what was promised to them. Because what's interesting is when Exodus starts, they are not a great name or a great nation. They are, they are, they are great for a moment and then slaves in the next. And so they start by connecting back to God is continuing to do a work. And it goes on because it changes from these are the names to their current condition. And it says this, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Remember, Joseph in that generation has died. The other people have greatly increased over time. And he said to his people, behold... The people of Israel are too many or mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them slaves. Have you ever noticed in Scripture that it'll be like one sentence, someone will hit, hit the space bar, there'll be another sentence, but in there's like 250 years Right, like we just read it as like one consistent thought. But in that moment, like so much time has passed. They came, Joseph lives to be 110, he dies, then they multiply, and now they're slaves. And you're like, wait a second, how could Joseph be the number two in all the land and the new guy doesn't know who he is? That would be like becoming the new president and not be like, I don't even know who the old VP was. Like you're going to know. He did things. Like, right? Like, there's going to be a connection. How could you not know? Right? Do you ever read the Bible and you're like, wait a second, what, what are they not telling me in this little portion, right? Like, what am I missing right here that's going to make it? Like, what understanding when the Hebrews went back and read Exodus where they were like, yes, of course, that's history, and that we don't know, right? Does everyone ever wonder that? Like, what am I missing? And, and so I want to kind of fill it in a little bit because I want to give some perspective here uh, on how. How could it go from Joseph, number two, his people were given the land of Goshen. They were given this beautiful, fertile land. And now we see in verse 8 through 14, they're brutally oppressed slaves. How did you go from being powerful to being slaves? Let me give you some history. I'm going to try my best. Uh, does anyone here like history? Any history people in here? You're, okay, good. So the thing when you deal with ancient, like, antiquity and uh, ancient Egypt is you do your best with timing, right, <laughs> with timelines. There's early dates, there's late dates, so don't come up to me later and be like, well, you know, the later date, I'm just be like, I don't know, nerd, like, let it go. <laughs> like, it's fine. Uh, but I, I study this a lot. I love it. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm a history nerd, so I love these things. But we don't have a lot of uh, names of pharaohs to work with here in Exodus. It wasn't the main concern. The main concern is theology. But I want us to kind of have a good foundation that, of how the Israelite people got there. So I'm just going to give you some clues from history here. 
Uh, one of them comes from the Bible in 1 Kings 6. We know that um, the exodus, this moment where the people left Egypt, occurred 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Which you're like, oh, okay, well now I have it, of course. I'll go mark that on my Solomon's reign calendar. Um, <laughs> no, it's like we, we know that they possibly, um, they possibly departed from Egypt in about 1450 B.C. So if you, if you don't like history, let me just tell you, everything counts down to Jesus and then counts up till everything explodes. So, <laughs> right, it's all counting down. So if that helps with the dates, we're counting down to Jesus in this moment. So around 1446 they arrived. And a lot of historians place um, Joseph's arrival in Egypt during what's called the Hyksos or the Hyksos um, Empire. It's a Greek term that was applied to them. And the, the Hyksos reigned in Egypt from 1750 to 1570. And so they were not native Egyptian, but they reigned, they were the ruling class over Egypt. They were actually a Semitic people. And some of you are like, oh, that, that word sounds familiar. So Semitic people are people who speak Semitic languages. So I'll give, someone take a guess, what would a Semitic language be? Hebrew, yes. People are like, uh, Hebrew? Yes, no, I won't make fun of you if you get it wrong, don't worry. So Hebrew, that would be a Semitic language. Uh, Hebrews are a Semitic people. Um, Aramaic is a Semitic language. Arabic is a Semitic language. So Egypt at the time was ruled by a group of people. Who were, who were shepherds by nature, who were political, who were more light-skinned. Uh, they were from, like, northern Syria. They were from an area that they, they looked more closely related to Hebrews. If you take Semitic people, Hebrews now, nowadays would be genetically closer to people from, from to Turks and Armenians. So it's, it's a different, uh, they, were, they looked differently, they acted differently, they had different customs. But they ruled in Egypt at the time. They were the people that brought the horse and the chariot to Israel, the, this people. They were from a land uh, called Canaan. So these people were, were Canaanites from Canaan that, that lived in this area, and most likely this is who was in power when Joseph came. The reason that we, we can kind of assume that based other than on timelines, based on the Bible, is because Joseph in Genesis 41 is given a chariot by Pharaoh. And I don't know if you know much about chariots. They're not super great without horses. Uh, I've never owned one, but I can only imagine lashing a chariot to a camel and watching that happen. Uh, which would be pretty awesome. So they, uh, so at the time, they had horses, they had chariots, and those were not introduced until this empire took over. And you're like, why is this important? I'm going to tell you why. Because the Hyksos capital, remember these people, they were Canaanite, they were Semitic, they looked like Hebrews, they're part of this same genetic group of people. Uh, they lived, their capital was near an area called Goshen. And I think we have a map, and I'll show you here if you can kind of see on this map. Uh, this kind of darker green section that you see in the northeastern section of Egypt here as part of, part of the delta of the Nile that goes out. This was fertile land. If you look at a graph of where people lived in Egypt, they live in this triangle and this line and nowhere else. Uh, and so they were part of a very fertile land. You can see, though, uh, the city of Ramses, which is a renamed city for the original capital that, was, uh, that belonged to the Hyksos people. And so, again, I'm just setting this up because here you have a Semitic people that's ruling Egypt. 
they worship a god called Baal. If you've been in church for a while, you, you might have heard this term. The Israelites have a long history with struggling to break away from Baal worship. And you're like, why do they keep building these dumb idols in the middle of the desert to this god? Where do they get this dumb idea to build these things to Baal? Why does God have such a problem with Baal? Well, way back, the Hyksos people that ruled Egypt worshipped Baal as their god. And they had temples to Baal. And so this group of people were expelled by the native, keep the map up, by the native Egyptian people that came out of the southern uh, part of Egypt and came up and expelled the Hyksos and sent them back to essentially Canaan. Follow with me, this is important. If you were granted special privileges, right, the Hyksos people would not have had a problem with Hebrews coming in. They looked like them. They talked like them. They acted like them. They were shepherds like them. They had similar customs, which is usually the problem, as them. They were a Canaanite Semitic people, so they got some advantages. So Joseph, when he comes into the Pharaoh, it's not so unusual that a Pharaoh would take in someone that looked like them, acted like them, worked with them. They weren't native Egyptian. Okay, now the native people have come and expelled everyone that looks like you out of power. What does that mean for you? You're in trouble, right? The ruling class no longer looks like you, acts like you, worships who you worship, talks like you talk. In fact, they do not like you. They do not want you around. So when we read that all of a sudden they went from Joseph is the number two in power to now they're brutally oppressed as slaves, it's it is for a couple reasons. One, the evil of man and, the subject, uh, and, you know, how much the enemy hates the people of God. The other is that they looked, act, dressed, had the customs, the attitude, the language, the skin color of a people that were expelled. Are you still with me? And so this presented a problem for the people of Egypt because... Uh, when they say in Exodus 1.10, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply off war breaks out. They join our enemies and fight against us. You'd be like, why would they fight against you? They love it here. They're supported here. They're rich here. They're living in the best land that you could buy. It's like, well, because they look like, act like, sound like, dress like the people that we just kicked out. Are you still with me? And so they said, okay, since they look like the people we just kicked out, if those people come back. Who are the Hebrews? Who are the Semitic people going to follow? Probably other people that look like them. And so they did what many cultures have done through the history of time, and they said, let's make them slaves. And so in this, like, little tiny little break here is all of this history that occurs where these people are expelled, the, the Hebrew people are there, and all of the privileges that they, that they enjoyed, all of the safety, all of the security that they were promised when they came is now gone. And they are no longer now 70 people. They are many people. And so the response of Egypt is to subdue the population to reduce its size. Because if you're going to, and this, and this is all of history, this is not unique to Egypt, if you want to subdue a people, you separate them from their families. That's one. Separate the men, because if men and women are near, less babies, right? I hope you know that. Uh, <laughs> also, if you work someone to death, there's less of them, essentially. And so what's happened is they separate them and they begin to move them from the eastern side over away from their families. They begin to subject them to harsh uh, punishment, to harsh labor. And the hope is that they're going to be oppressed. There's going to be less of them. But what do we see in Exodus 1.12? If you have your Bible, just jump back there real quick. It says, the more they, the Israelites, were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Can I tell you, historically, this does not make sense? It does not make sense that a people who are worked to death, separated from their families, brutally oppressed, are multiplying, and the other one is spreading abroad. If you don't know much about slavery, let me tell you, slave masters don't like to let their slaves spread abroad. That's usually not a practice that is observed. That's because you have so much number. And, and, and the question is then, if it's historically impossible for a people oppressed and enslaved to multiply and spread abroad, how are they doing this? And I'll tell you, it's a theme we're going to see all throughout Exodus is that God is a covenant maker. And if God makes a covenant, he will keep a covenant. See, a covenant is not a contract. A covenant is not just an offhand promise. A covenant is a deep relational commitment. It is built and founded on love for one another. And if God makes a promise, he will keep it. All throughout Exodus, we're going to see if God makes a promise, he will keep it. He promised Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great generation. Your offspring will increase. And so in this moment, he's reminding his people, though you now, slavery was not their ideal. This is not the fulfillment in slavery here. But he's reminding his people, he's constantly affirming the covenant that he's made. He says, listen, if I made a promise, I'm going to fulfill a promise. And so even though you are under the, the oppression of the enemy and you're not where I need you to go, you're not quite there yet. You're not at the place that I believe I'm going to bring you. I'm still going to even now honor the covenant. I'm not going to wait to honor it. I'm going to honor as we go. Are you with me? Because God is a covenant maker, and if you make a covenant, you keep a covenant. And I love that, is that God is pointing to his faithfulness. And all throughout Exodus, you're going to see as we go through it, God pointing through his faithfulness that culminates with Jesus Christ. I love, honestly, one of my greatest moments that you see here in faithfulness is with the midwives. Uh, it's cool because these two people get mentioned by name. Like Pharaoh doesn't even get a name. Israelite elders don't get a name. But these two gals get named in Scripture, and I love it because they're just so hardcore. So let's read this. Uh, Exodus 1, 15 through 22 says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom named Shifra, and the other one Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And I love their response. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, and they're about to burn them, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So they're saying, they, ha they have kids quick. We can't even get there fast enough. They're just so intense. <laughs> so God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh says, so, since we can't stop and we've separated them, we've oppressed them, but they keep growing, they keep expanding. For some reason, he doesn't get it because he's hard-hearted. We know it's the covenant of God. He said, let's just kill them. And so they say to the midwives, go there. When they have a baby, if it's a boy, kill it. And the midwives say, not a chance. <laughs> 
Because the midwives know God, and they know a God that abhors the death of babies. They, they know a God that, that does not want them to come and kill these Hebrew babies. And I love that scripture mentions their name because they're so brave to go before. I mean, get this. This is Pharaoh. This is like the emperor of kings of emperors, right? And they go and they say, you might be the king of Egypt, but we serve the king of kings, and we're going to do what he says. And he says that these children are important. And I love this bravery because even though they're in darkness, even though they're suffering, I love this rebellious nature that, that just establishes that no matter what darkness comes, God is greater. There is nothing to me darker than this moment of Pharaoh wanting just the murder of unborn children. But God is still greater in the face of it. God is greater than the darkness around them. God is greater than the darkness against you. God is still greater. And I was thinking about this. Think about all the great leaders in Israel history that were born because of these women's defiance. Think about Caleb. And what he's done in scripture, if, if you know the story of Caleb, think about Joshua. Think about these, these young men that would not have existed if someone had deemed to follow the law of the land instead of the law of heaven. And they said, no, the, we're going to do what we know is right. And so they stood up and they said, God is still greater. God is still more mighty. And I love that God sees them and he sees their faithfulness. And in this moment, it's very likely they were barren women. And because of their faithfulness, God says, instead of barrenness, I will give you the fruit of your womb. I will give you children. I will bring you back. I will give you what would have been a celebration for them because he honors it. Even in the midst of this moment of extreme, extreme darkness, God says, I'm still greater. I'm greater than the broken. I'm greater than being barren. I'm greater than the darkness. I'm still greater. What's mind-blowing to me is it gets even darker when they say, okay, since you won't kill them, what we're going to do is we're going to take them and we're going to throw them into the Nile. I find this fascinating because to the Egyptians, the Nile was a god. And so the Egyptians are all about wiping out a generation of young men. In turn, uh, it will, in vengeance, cost them a generation of young men. But what they're saying is, you know what, we're just going to give the, the Hebrew children to the Nile, to, to the god. And what I love is that as they are literally, not, not metaphorically, but literally handed into this river, into the hands uh, of a pagan God that they were worshiping and believing, the real true God rescues the deliverer out of the Nile. And this is something that we are just going to see over and over and over again is that God is a deliverer. Who is God? Who is God? Is the God of the Old Testament mean and the God of the New Testament is fluffy? No. God is God. And God is a deliverer. And with a mighty hand, he delivers the people out of Egypt. And I love this. If you've never heard of Moses, I'm going to introduce you to, to one of my favorite uh, people in the Bible. Uh, if, you're, if you're in your Bible, just keep going with me. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And I know it's a lot, but I'm trying to set the stage so we are ready to rock in this whole thing. Verse 1 says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. We'll talk more about the Levites. It says, a woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, meaning that she loved him, she doubted over him, she, she was in love with her child, she didn't want to give him up. She hid him for three months. 
When she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay, the word here for the basket is actually ark. She takes him and she puts him in essentially the same word for the thing. And now Moses is writing this. He who is not shy on making the comparison here. And she literally places him in this ark. And, and I know sometimes we see it in the thing where we're in like the cartoon version. She like sends him down the river like, bye Moses, you'll make it. Like just sends a three-month-old baby down the river. No. Uh, <laughs> The Nile has a massive floodplain. Think more of the south or like, like, like a delta, right? And there's reeds and rushes all over. And so in the day, the Egyptians would come around looking for babies. Now, a two-month-old baby you could stash. Two-month-old babies all look like a blob anyways. Boy, girl, they kind of just look like the same squishy mess. But as they get older, they start to look more like one or the other, right? Anybody with kids, you know what I'm talking about. They start looking more like one or the other. And so when it gets to three months, you can't just like keep like a three-month-old baby quietly stashed away somewhere in the home of, you know, your tiny slave house, right? Again, not wealthy, slaves. And so they, she made this basket to put this kid in to hide him out in the reeds when, the, when they would raid. So in this moment, she's literally hiding this, this, this child in the middle of this river. And I think it's interesting that saviors always seem to get drawn out of the most dire places, and the most unusual places. And so, verse 5, we see it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh, this is wild, came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Well, how could she know this was a Hebrew child? Well, because they look different. Right? Remember, they, they were different people. And so she says, this is a Hebrew's child. And, the, and let's see. Then the sister, I love Miriam. She's awesome. says, then the sister said to, jo, to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for, for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, the mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because he said, I drew him out of the water. Okay, I love this. First and foremost, moms, how many of you would like to get paid for being a mom? That's awesome, right? Now, she had to give him up. I don't know. I think he was, I, I forgot the exact age he was, about six. I mean, I don't know. Who knows at six? You might just be like, yeah, man, go. Be you. You do you. Uh, <laughs> I have a five-year-old. I kind of think that sometimes. Um, <laughs> But in this moment, it's this really amazing thing where God so provides as it takes this Hebrew child who were outcasts, who were left to the weeds, and raises him up to be the grandson of Pharaoh. Think about that. A child from the most unlikely circumstances is raised up, lifted out of the hands of this pagan god, the Nile River, by the mighty hand of God, and raised up to draw a people out. He's named Moses. She named him Moses because she thought she drew him out. He was named Moses because God was going to use him to draw his people out, to establish the covenant that was going to draw us out because God is a deliverer. I drew him out of the water. 
And I think it's one of the most fascinating introductions and setups of everything that's going to come. Because in just like another verse, Moses is going to be an adult. But I don't want us to skip what's happening here because I think it was meant to set up in our hearts and establish and reestablish who God is for you and I. Not just for the people of Israel, not for thousands of years ago, but for you and I today. Who is God? Because I believe everything in Exodus is beautifully reflected in the life of Jesus. And I believe that God is a covenant maker. If you look at Matthew 1.1, we see it says, the book of the genealogy or the book of the names of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see that connection? Exodus, these are the names. These are the people, the people of my promise. Matthew, these are the names. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's establishing the history, the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. See, God had made a covenant and promise from the beginning. This is what I love about the Word of God. This is why I think it's so important to read it. It's because did you know from the beginning of time, God has been preparing for you and I to have a loving Savior? Genesis 3.15, he literally looks at the devil after he causes the fall, and he looks at the devil and he says, Devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And we know that Jesus is the seed of Eve. He comes from Eve. It says, he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. See, the enemy struck the heel and crucified the Lord, but Jesus crushed the head of the enemy. He destroyed death. That's at the beginning. That's, that's chapter 3 of like all of the chapters. <laughs> right? Three, you're three in. He gave it away. But this is where God is. He's a covenant maker since Eden. God has promised that the seed of Eden would crush the devil. And so we see in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free nor male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Exodus shows you and I that God is a covenant maker. And can I tell you, I need a God that I can trust. I need a God that if he makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. I don't need fluffy God. I need a mighty hand God. I need God who's going to lift. I need God who's victorious. I need God who's a deliverer. I need God that if he promises something, I can look back on 20,000 years of history and say, you know what? If he makes a promise, he's going to keep a promise. That Jesus is not plan B. That this is the greatest comeback in mankind in the history of the universe. God has been preparing and preparing and preparing and showing and affirming and reaffirming that if he makes a covenant, he will fulfill it in Jesus Christ. You are recipients of the promise. Everything you see in Exodus is not just for the people of Israel. It's for you because God raises up through the line of Israel, Jesus Christ, who died for us.
And not only is he covenant maker that he's greater. I said God is greater. That's what we see in Exodus. But that's also what we see for you. God is greater just like he's greater than the gods of Egypt. Just like he's greater than everything thrown at the slaves. Everything that, that tries to come against them. Against a sea that they could not cross. A desert they could not navigate. A people they could not conquer. God is greater. See the enemy always thinks that he's one. This is what I love about Jesus. Is the enemy always overplays his hand. And God always has the victory. Because God is still victorious. God is still greater. My favorite thing to read about is the church in China. Because literally they stood up and said, you know, the church is dead. Church is gone. Christianity is gone. And now it is the fastest growing church in the world. Why? Because God is greater than politics. God is greater than governments. God is greater than oppression. God is greater than slavery. God is greater than persecution. The light is always greater than the darkness, and that's Jesus Christ. For you and I, we are not just here. When you see here, the kind of God that brings deliverance is the same God that came for you and I to bring deliverance in your life. God is greater than what you face today. 1 John 4 says, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I want to invite the band up this morning. I said God is a covenant maker. The thing that we see about God for us through Exodus is that God is greater. We're going to see that all, all the time as we walk through. Not only today but continually. And finally God is a deliverer. Not just for Exodus but for you and I. Though we are trapped in sin, God sent a deliverer that is Jesus Christ. Though you and I are in slavery, though we were in slavery to our sin and our shame, a debt that we could not pay, a price that we could not cover, Jesus already came and he died for that. And he welcomes us in to that relationship. He says, I've come to deliver you, to break the chains. Jesus is a chain breaker. He is greater than addiction. He is greater than depression. He can break the chains. I believe that about him. Everything in Exodus we see just so clearly fulfilled greater through Jesus. Jesus is a greater Moses. Follow me here. I'm going to give you some parts of Exodus. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain to protect God's people from death. That's Exodus 12. Jesus is the greater son of Israel who came out of Egypt. And he is the great redeemer who brings his people out of bondage and slavery that is far worse than anything the Israelites experienced there. Exodus 12 through 14. He's the true bread from heaven that actually nourishes and feeds his people eternally. Exodus 16. Jesus is the rock from whom the only life-giving water flows. Exodus 17. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, perfectly obeying not only the Ten Commandments, but also 613 from the day of his birth, Exodus 20. Are you still with me? He is the one through whom we enter into our lasting Sabbath rest, not just for one day out of seven, but for every day from now through all eternity, Exodus 23, 10 through 12. He is our great high priest who offers his very body as an atonement for the sins of his people, Exodus 28 through 29. He is the radiance of God, the exact representation of his being, and is the very presence and glory of God among his people, even more than the ark or the pillars or the cloud or the fire, Exodus 40, 34 through 38. 
all of Exodus points to Jesus, that Jesus is greater. When you read Exodus, it's not like, well, that's great for the Hebrew people. That's great for you. Because the cloud of glory that fell is the same God who dwells with you. The same blood that was shed on the doorposts as a sacrifice is the same blood that is shed as the perfect lamb for you and I. It's the same. It points. Jesus didn't, or God didn't just have to remix it for the New Testament. The New Testament is the new covenant that you and I have received. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that was given. And so what that means for you and I is that God is for you. He is greater. He is a covenant maker. And he is a deliverer, which means what you face today, just like the slavery and the oppression and the darkness of the people in Exodus, is not greater than God then, and it's surely not greater than him now. And more so, he has given you through the covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, a new hope and deliverance, not only for this world, but for eternity. Some of you today, you need to remember that our God is the God that breaks chains, that breaks away the shackles and brings his people out of slavery. And that if he promised you, he's going to fulfill it. If he said it, he's going to do it. And he's come to deliver you. There is nothing that is beyond God. I want you to stand with me this morning. I know we're going a little long. It's a lot to try to sum up the history of a whole nation's 250 years. But I say this to you because as we walk through and when we get to Jesus, we're going to be in Matthew. And you know what starts Matthew? A genealogy. Interesting. Exodus starts with the description of the people of God. Matthew 1 starts with the description of the people of God that points to the promise. Exodus 2 is the birth of of a Savior who would come and deliver them from the hands of slavery. I'll give you one guess what Matthew 2 talks about. <laughs> the birth of a Savior who will bring deliverance for all people. God did not come for you to live like slaves. He came to deliver you. You have a mighty Savior. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? My prayer through this series as we go through Exodus and even today is that God will begin to reveal himself to you. I see too often that we have the mindset of slaves. You'll see through Exodus how that, that doesn't work out. We have the mindset through slaves, though, though we have been delivered. We have the mindset of those who are still in slavery, though we have been delivered through Jesus Christ. We have the mindset of those who are not under the victory, and yet we have received a victory of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you today that God is a deliverer, and he has come to deliver you from sin and shame. And whatever darkness you face, God is greater because God is a covenant maker and a promise keeper and a chain breaker. And he's here to speak to you today. And if today, if you need a deliverer, it is his nature, his history, his story, his way. And from the beginning of time, God has sought you to bring you to a place where you would receive the truth of Jesus Christ and be delivered today. A greater exodus, not from national slavery, but from the slavery of your soul to sin and to shame. God has come to deliver you. First thing I'm going to pray for you for today, every eye closed, every head bowed as we close this morning. First thing I want to pray with you is if you have never made that decision to follow Christ with your life, to say, Jesus, I take that step and I choose to follow you. 
and you're saying, I, I don't want to be a slave to my sin and my shame. I want freedom this morning. I want freedom through you, Jesus. If that's you, every eye closed, every head bowed, if that's you and you're saying for the first time, or maybe you need to recommit your heart today, you're saying, Jesus, I choose to follow you. I need a Savior today, and I believe God will do a miracle in your life. If you just say today, God, Jesus, I need a Savior. If that's you, would you just lift your hand real quick? Jesus, I need a Savior today. The second thing we're going to pray for is this. Some of you, as we read about Israel that went from a place of feeling so favored to a place of complete slavery in your life, you're saying, I need just the truth of the deliverance of God, not only eternally, but right now in my life. I feel stuck. I feel captive. Some of you, it's depression in your mind. Some of you, it's a broken relationship, and you feel stuck today. And even though we're launching in a series, you got what you came for this morning, which is to hear that God is a God who delivers, and God is a God who sets free. And today, you need to pray, God, would you set me free? I need freedom. I need a release from the captivity in my life right now, whatever that might be for you. If you need to say, God, save me, rescue me, deliver me, if that's you. All eyes closed and head bowed. I just want you to lift up your hand. I'm going to pray with you in agreement. If you're saying, I need God to lift me up, to save me out of my captivity, to rescue me from my situation. I feel stuck. I feel trapped. God, I need you. Just leave it up. If you need to lift up both hands and just surrender it all to him, this is you and him. I'm not even looking at you. This is you and him right now. Just lift it up in this moment. I'm going to pray for you in a second, but even in this moment, just begin to speak to him. You're going to say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you today. I need you to do a miracle in my life today. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm going to pray for you with every hand raised. God, I pray for these hands that you see right now lifted up in this place. The people who stand like Israel and who call upon your name and say, God, I need rescuing in my situation. God, I thank you that you have fulfilled the covenant through Jesus Christ, that we receive a Savior and a victory that comes from you. And yet, God, you also see every situation. And God, it's not only that we have an eternal victory, but we have a God who is for us, not against us. And so, God, I pray right now for deliverance. I pray right now for rescue. I pray right now for provision in the name of Jesus over every life. God, I pray those whose hands are raised, who are struggling with the captivity of their mind. God, right now, who feel like they are in a slavery in their mind, I pray a release in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that every mind is released from slavery. God, I feel like those who are feeling stuck or trapped right now, who cannot see a way out, who are crying out in slavery of their situation, God, I pray a release in the name of Jesus. I pray for you right now, wherever you are, that you would restore in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit the hope that comes from Him. The restored hope that comes from Him. That you are not forgotten but He sees you and He knows you and I pray even right now that He would begin to stir it up a hope inside you that you would no longer see yourself as a slave but you would see yourself as God says that you are which is a child of God. As God says you are which is a victorious son or daughter of God who walks in the resurrection who walks in the life 
that Christ who is in you is greater than him who is in the world. That is your identity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That is your identity this morning. I pray the identity of the Most High God over you in your life, what he's speaking, and I reject the lies of the enemy that say you are stuck where you are. And we speak truth over your life for you have been crucified with Christ and no longer live but Christ lives in you for the life you live in the body you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you Galatians I pray truth over you in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus just take one more second just receive some of you. You're fighting it today. The truth of the hope God wants to put in your heart. I'm going to say take two seconds right now and just say, Jesus, I receive it this morning. I receive what you're trying to give to me. I know I want to push it away because I'm hurt and I'm hurting. But I'm just going to open up and receive it today. I know I want to push it because I don't want to feel those feelings. I don't want to have to walk through that pain. I don't want to have to go through this desert. I don't know if I can trust again. But you know what, God? I'm just going to receive it today from you. And I'm going to trust again that you're good and you're faithful. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus.